So open your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, mark that spot, and turn over to the book of Isaiah. Of course, we are talking about peace this morning. Um, that is the subject for the second Sunday of Advent. And these two passages are probably the two most commonly associated with that idea, that theme, this marvelous promise of peace in the Christmas season. Um, I think we all know, you know, peace associated with Christmas. If you have any questions, just walk down the Christmas card aisle in the store and take a gander. You'll find that's probably there about number three on the list. A lot of Christmas cards talk about peace. But let's be honest, we've all got questions. Because, I mean, we were promised peace 2,000 years ago, and if you look around the world today, we see anything but. And so we find ourselves asking exactly what is the deal here, right? Peace on earth, but apparently not. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We want to explore the question exactly what is offered in the promise of peace. And if there's a holdup, if there's a holdup, what is it? So we're going to begin first with that passage in Isaiah. Pastor Joyce already made reference to it. Um, the prophet Isaiah said this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then turning over to the Gospel of Luke, Luke records the message, and we're not going to read the whole thing, just one section of it. Verse 13, Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among men with whom he's well pleased. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. And as we, as we look to it this morning, we do want to hear from you, Lord. That is our desire. That is our need. So help us, we pray. Hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I chose these two passages for a couple of different reasons. Uh, first, because they both focus on the central issue of the Incarnation. That is where we start. That's where we end. Whether we're talking about peace or anything else, as the people of Christ, as the people of God, it all comes down to the Incarnation, God taking on the veil of human flesh. Both of those passages talk about that, and then they talk about the importance of peace and the connection between the Incarnation, God taking upon human flesh, and peace. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'll just briefly look at how both the Old Testament and the New present the Incarnation, because Christmas is all about the Incarnation, and then compare, and spend a little more time with this, how peace is presented both in the Old Testament, and of course in the language of the Old Testament Hebrew, and then in the New. And then see if we can out of that uh, answer the question, what is meant by the promise of peace? Or to put it another way, what should our expectation be as we hear the promise of peace? So let's first of all talk about the importance of the Incarnation, Jesus, God coming to dwell among humanity and doing so in human flesh. And, and I have to just throw out a short disclaimer here. You know, this week has been one of those weeks, you know, normally by about Friday I'm pulling all of my thoughts together. But this week being one of those weeks, that got moved to Saturday. And my wife's Friday got moved to Saturday. So she was doing all the things on Friday, that, on Saturday that she would have done on Friday. 
and I was doing all the things on Saturday that I would have done on Friday. So, you know, you begin to feel that compaction in your mind. And then about 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, my wife yells, Jan, come here! And I don't want to come here. I'm working. And I'll, I was really getting a little agitated, thinking as I headed up the stairs, this better be important. And I get to the stairs, and there's water coming out of the ceiling. Okay, it's important. As it turned out to be, we were able to resolve it over the period of the next four or five hours. Um, anybody good at sheetrock repair? Yeah, I'll call you. Uh, yeah, so, but we got through it. We got through it. But, you know, it was just like, it was like, you want to talk about peace? Fine. Let me throw you some chaos. Because that really is the opposite of peace. Chaos, isn't it? I mean, we think that like, peace is the opposite of war. War is just one expression of chaos. So keep that, keep that thought in mind. So if I seem a little bit out of order, just bear with me. So we're talking about the importance of the incarnation, Jesus, God, coming to dwell in human flesh. Isaiah really lays it out. He says in verse 6, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. That's a person. right? He's talking about a human being, right? Starts off talking about a human being. But then what does he say? He says the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called, listen to the name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, a human being can pull off two of those, right? A human being, if you're really on top of it, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. You might be able to pull that off. But the other two, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Eternal Father, a human being thinks either one of those titles apply to them are delusional. They don't. They're God titles. So the titles invoked are God titles, especially when you take them all together. Mighty Counselor, a wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. It's a big job. It's a God job. Verse 7 presents it as eternal. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So it's eternal in its nature. That's a God thing, not a man thing, right? And then he says that it's established by the hand of God. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. So he starts about talking about a human being, a son will be born to us, and then he says, God-like in job description, right? God-like in duration, and God-caused, God-initiated. So that combination of God... The point just being this, it's in the Old Testament if you look for it. One of the sayings that you'll hear is, it's in the Old Testament concealed and the New Testament revealed. But it's there. The incarnation has always been the centerpiece of God's plan for his people. It all comes down to his dwelling in human flesh. Pretty straightforward stuff. And then, of course, we get to the New Testament. It's so obvious. It's all about God taking on the veil of human flesh. Jesus said, before Abraham was I am. And everything in the New Testament flows out of that central truth. His birth, his death, his resurrection. Everything else is, as they say, detail. The centerpiece, the incarnation. You lose that, you lose the whole thing. You have that, everything else works out. Pretty straightforward stuff. So the idea that God taking on the veil of human flesh, the incarnation, that's pretty straightforward. Not that we can necessarily comprehend it, but its reality is pretty straightforward. But the peace part, that's more complicated. Isaiah talked about the Prince of Peace. The angels announced peace on earth. But what about this word peace? 
how does it, what does it express in the two languages of Scripture? Does that help us understand it? Um, you'll often hear it said, and I think it's, it's, as a generalization it's true, that Hebrew is a very inclusive language. Hebrew is a language where one word gathers a lot of meaning, right? And, and my favorite example, I know I've used this before, is that beautiful word hesed. Hesed. It's all of God's loving intention towards us. Everything that can be included under the, under the thought of God's love for us is included in that one word. So when, when the scripture says the steadfast hesed of the Lord never ceases, you know we got it covered. Right? His mercies never come to an end. It's that encompassing kind of a word. It's very, some would say synthetic, right? On the other hand, Greek is very analytic and it chops up. So that same concept that like Hesed, all these different things with one word, Greek does the opposite. Let me give you a bunch of words. And each of those words doesn't mean what the other word means. So one word's very inclusive, comprehensive. The other word is other languages more of a slice and dice manner. And that's certainly true in the idea of peace. For example, or not example, the point to be made is that in Hebrew, most of us would know this, the word peace is shalom, right? Huge word. Throughout the Old Testament, it means peace, harmony, wholeness, cessation of conflict, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility. It also means hello and goodbye. Like aloha, right? You never know whether you're coming or going, right? So it means all of those things. And this whole idea of the peace of God and the goodness of God. God is our shalom. That's the point. Everything, God's goodness for us all wrapped up in this one word. Well, how does the New Testament work? So much difference. Um, we need to talk about, and I'm just going to talk about three words. Three words that really help us get an idea of what we're talking about when Scripture says peace. The first one, the most common one, is the word erini, which you all know, if you know anyone by the name of Irene. That's what the name means, peace. Now, I can't speak to whether or not the person you know named Irene is adequately described by that word or not. I won't go there. Um, I'm not going to talk about any people in my life by that name, right? They were lovely. They were. Uh, it was friends of my parents. Yeah. Um, but it means, simply put, the absence of conflict, right? But there's so much more in that word than that, right? One of the things I've said before, um, we don't believe in Greek mythology. We don't teach Greek mythology. But... Mythology flavors the language, right? Culture informs the language. And in order to understand the word, as the writers of Scripture use it, and as the audience of Scripture uses it, you need to understand a little bit of the culture. And that's true of our language as well. Now, I don't think anybody here has the last name Nixon, do they? But I would bet if that was your last name, if you had a son, you wouldn't name him Richard, right? Nothing's wrong with the name Richard. It's a fine name. It's a wonderful name, but if your name, last name is Nixon, you don't use it, right? Because of the cultural connotations, right? And I came up with a hundred different examples, right? That one came to mind. So the culture doesn't form the language. And there's plenty of New Testament examples of that as well. One, one of the best ones at the very end of the book of Acts, you probably know about this, um, what Paul shipwrecked. And how is the shipwreck resolved? They park it on a reef and they swim to the beach, right? And when they get to the beach, it's cold, and so the locals on the island build a lovely fire, and they're all getting warm, and Paul's doing his part, and he picks up a bundle of sticks, and as he puts them on the fire, a viper comes out, and, poof, nails him in the hand. And what do the locals say? 
<laughs> this man must be a murderer. Because even though he escaped from the sea, justice has caught up with him. Who's justice? Greek goddess. Roman goddess. That's the one that has the blindfold, the scales, and the sword. What were they doing? They were speaking in terms they understood. Now, when Luke records that, Luke's not buying into it, but he's using terminology as they understand it. So the language was written in the culture of the day, and it reflected that. So it's helpful to us to understand, when we look at this name Erdini, to know that it's not just a word that means a cessation of conflict. It's identified with so much more. Erini, as you might be able to guess, was a Greek goddess. She was the goddess of peace, right? And where she really comes into the culture of the language is an, is an event that occurred in about 375. So it's very hard for me to share this. The Athenians lost a fight. I mean, sorry, the Spartans lost a fight. Oh, and the Athenians won, which is really hard for somebody from the Peloponnese like I to admit. But it happened. The Athenians beat the Spartans, and they had invoked this deity, Erini, you know, to win, and they did, right? And so as a result of that, in three, after 375, they put statues of Erini in Athens, okay? Here's why I share that. Each of those statues celebrating their victory over Sparta in 375, um, she's holding something. Every one of the statues, she's holding something. She's holding the deity Plutus, little baby, baby Plutus, right? Wealth, prosperity. How many times in our vocabulary do we connect peace with prosperity? That's where it comes from. The idea that with peace comes prosperity. And that's exactly what had happened in Athens. They were really struggling economically. Their culture was in decay. And, you know, the golden age was in the past. And yet with this victory came a period of peace, and they were able to rebuild the city economically and culturally. And it had kind of a little mini revival. So that association of peace and prosperity goes to that point. But it also connects to the idea of Sophia, wisdom. Because the point being this, it takes a wise leader, when threatened with conflict, to find a way to avoid fighting the conflict. And greater prosper. Yeah, there's some money to be made in going out and conquering people and taking their stuff, right? But that's kind of a dead end, because before long you run out of people you can conquer to take their stuff. Not forgetting the fact you might lose now and then, right? It's so much better if everybody just takes care of their own business, minds their own business, finds ways to get along and seek our common interests. That makes everybody better off. And the wise leader is the one that can do that. So there was a connection in their mind. That's the whole point. Connection in their mind between cessation of conflict, peace, prosperity, and the wisdom that brings that. All of that is balled up in this word, erini. This, when, when, when you talk about peace in the first century, erini, that's what comes to mind. That's the expectation. That's one word. Uh, the second word, second word I like to talk about, um, one that we don't necessarily connect so much with peace, and that is the word teleos. We talked about this before, and that is the word for perfect. And of course, in the Christian mind, the Christian vocabulary, when you say perfection or perfect, the anxiety goes up because... You know, so many have come from a background where to be a Christian, you have to be morally perfect. And if you're not, you get this, you know, thing, a heap of shame dumped upon you. 
that's not what this is talking about. We've talked about this before. Teleos in the Greek is more of the sense of complete. Complete. That's how Paul uses it in the Colossian letter, saying we proclaim him, that is Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so we may present everyone complete in Christ. That's not necessarily morally perfect. That's not what he's after, right? None of us get there this side of eternity. But complete in the sense that when a house is finished, it's perfect. It's complete. Yes, down the line, the plumbing may fail, right? Yes, maybe the ceilings weren't as high as you would have liked them, or other flaws can be found. But does the house function? It's perfection in terms of function. It can relate to the tools that were used. Now, some may like a heavier hammer than others, but as long as the job is done, it's a perfect tool. Even the workmanship, again, not that there's not a flaw that can be found anywhere, but because the, the, what is being crafted, say a home, is brought to a place of completion and use, it's perfect. And here's the beauty of that, that also applies to the process. We think nothing of walking up to a carpenter and saying, man, you're doing really good work, even though the house isn't finished, right? Oh, that's beautiful. You're making beautiful progress. That's where the concept of peace comes in for us. When we can see ourselves in the hands of a truly master craftsman, our lives being constructed in such a way that we progress towards completion. I can look at myself and see any number of flaws, but I can also see his hand working in my life. That is where the peace is found. Not in where I'm at, but in what he's accomplishing in me. What he is doing in me. That's the source of peace in my life. So teleos, this idea of completion, brings the concept of peace in that we understand the process. The process by which we are being crafted into his image. As long as we can see ourselves in that process, there's a tremendous sense of completion. The third word, probably my, fam my favorite in this list, is the word galini. Galini. It's only found three times in Scripture. It's, it's describing the same event. It's found in Matthew 8, Mark 4, and Luke 8. And all three times it describes that incredible scene where Jesus is asleep in the boat and the storm comes up. Master are perishing and Jesus stands up and it says he rebukes the wind and the waves. One of the questions I want to ask when I get to heaven is exactly what words did he use? Right? Because I think, you know, we tend to think he was got all King James-ish, you know, be thou still. I don't think so. No, no, no. I think he went parent. Remember, whose waves are they? His. Whose wind is it? His. Whose lake is it? His. I, and again, this is totally speculative. You can have some fun with it. Why not, right? I think he just, shut up. Just knock it off. Or maybe even, I'm serious, this is how I think about these things in order to get, maybe it was, don't make me turn this boat around. Yeah. I mean, he shut it down. Here's the thing, though. Rational people don't talk to inanimate forces that way. Right? Now, I'm not saying I don't, but rational people don't rebuke inanimate forces. He spoke to the wind and the waves as if he knew them. He personified them. Now, that may just be a tool of language. We do that. Legitimate doesn't necessarily infer that you're mentally unstable. We personify things. We do, right? 
But look at what look at what it says. It says he spoke or he rebuked the wind and the waves, and a great calm. Galim, calmness, right? Mark and Luke say a great calm. Think of how we personify the seas. We talk about an angry sea. You think that? It's odd if you heard that expression. No, sea's not angry. Doesn't act like a right? We talk about um, a troubled sea. Doesn't have troubles. I mean, maybe if you're into the whole environmental issue, you might go there. But the sea is not like personal. But we talk about a troubled sea, a sea that's stirred up, a sea that is contrary. Think of a lot of people I might describe that way, but the sea. Or how about this one, a sea that is confused. For those that don't know, that's when two great bodies are coming together and they're pushing opposite directions and it messes everything. That's a confused sea. It's really hard to navigate. You get to push one way, to push. you don't know what to do. It's confusing. It's a confused sea, right? Whatever was stirring these waters up, the wind, the currents that may have been on the lake, or demonic entities, that's a possibility. Jesus spoke calm and he absolutely stilled the water. But when you think of calm water, beautiful word, Galini, and you think of, 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 of an ocean that is calm, is it absolutely still? No. There are still tremendous forces moving, even in a body of water that's flat calm. Even, in a, even on a day out on the ocean when there's no wind, there are no waves, there's still tide. Tide carries an unbelievable amount of energy. It's estimated that at any given time, the tides themselves generate or contain, I'm not sure of the right terminology, 3,000 billion watts of energy. And that can happen with the water just flat calm. Why? It's in balance, it's in harmony. The water is moving with the tide, but unless something disrupts it, it stays calm. Now you put a beach in front of it, and the tide hits the beach. If the beach is abrupt, you got rough water. If the beach is you know, relatively flat, the tide moves in, the tide moves out. What disrupts the harmony of the water is anything that puts it out of balance, anything that obstructs it, creating chaos. And sometimes, out on the water, it can only be described as chaos. When Jesus spoke peace, what he was doing was restoring balance and harmony within this body of water, contrary to the chaos that had been there before. What, what does Jesus do in the incarnation? He restores harmony where there had been chaos. What did he do on the boat? He restored harmony where there had been chaos. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but there's a tremendous parallel between what Jesus did in the boat that day and the very beginning of the Old Testament in Genesis. Think about what Jesus does. He stands up in the boat. The wind is howling. The waves are coming over the edge of the boat. It's a state of total and complete chaos. And with a word, he restores order. Compare that with the opening words of Genesis. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And what did God do? He spoke light, and there was light. What is the incarnation? It's God entering into darkness and chaos and bringing order and light. 
God bringing calm in the midst of a storm. This is what Jesus was, was talking about, if you think about it, when um, he, he talked to Mary, or Martha, right? Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. Martha was out of balance. Too many things on her mind. We've all been there, right? This is about what Jesus was talking about when he said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, most translations say, your whole body is full of light. That word actually means if your eye is single. If your eye is uncomplicated, if you got if you got your focus in the right place, right? I mean, life is by definition in this world chaotic. What gets us through it? When we find that chaos that allows us to prioritize things, know what to listen to, what not to listen to, uh, knowing what should influence us, what should, and that's that singleness of perspective that the incarnation brings. So when the gospel writers speak of peace, they're speaking of cessation of conflict. When they speak of peace, they're speaking of not only completion and wholeness, but movements towards completion and wholeness. And they're talking about harmony and balance, and all of that comes back to the incarnation, to that moment when the Savior left heaven itself and entered into our chaos. Here's the thing, though. That ultimate question, why don't we see it more? Because it's always presented as an option. It's always presented as an option. You know, we're told in the New Testament, blessed are the peacemakers. That's a phrase we need to be careful with because peace isn't something you actually can make. Peace is only something you can offer. Now, you can craft, and that's what that word maker means. It means to craft. You can craft an environment in which two separated parties can come together in reconciliation. You can craft an environment where someone that has offended another can ask for forgiveness and be offered forgiveness. But the bottom line is, peace is always an offer. Even in the incarnation, it's presented with the option of turning it down. That's why that process of going from peace and prosperity has to include wisdom. That was the final step. Peace generates prosperity, but only if there's wisdom to act upon it. The angelic proclamation, the ending of it is so neglected. Peace on earth with men in whom he is well pleased. That doesn't mean people who are you know, anything other than smart enough to take the deal. Smart enough to take the deal. That is true of us in our relationship with him because that's the most essential level for peace to be established. If we don't have peace with him, we don't have peace with anyone. That's the essential deal on peace within ourselves. If I don't have peace within myself, you know, I didn't have anybody doing anything to me yesterday. Nobody was hitting me, nobody was hurting me, but I was a mess for a good bit of the day. That was all internal. That was all me. Me acting on me. Right? And he, but he offers that peace. John, get your focus. John, get your priorities right. Realize that it is just sheetrock. Right? Can be fixed. Right? Just get those priorities right. Let his peace and his harmony come to a place of restoration. 
That, by the way, that process usually involves his word. Yeah. Um, and this music stand. And then with one another. All we can ever do is extend the offer. And do everything in our power to make that offer as reasonable as possible. And then, as he tells the Roman church, as much as it is possible with you, live in peace with all others. So the offer is there. The offer has been made as magnificently and as generously as it can possibly be made in my relationship with God, in my relationship inside my own head, in my relationship with others, right? And so it's as simple as this. When peace is lacking, we shouldn't have to look too far to find the reason. At what level has the offer been rejected? And then address it at that level. All the while praying, God, give us the wisdom to know how to do that. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have at every turn, going back to the very beginning when you stepped into the chaos of the uh, created world that was, was a mess and brought about the created world that was beautiful. I think, Father, how you offered man the opportunity to live in the beauty of that, in the harmony of that, and at the very outset, we turned the offer down, Lord, and brought about the chaos that we've lived ever since. And then, Father, you returned to this world in the person of your Son and once again offered us peace, harmony, prosperity, progress in our lives, and that sense of living in, 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 in balance, Father, with one another, with the environment we live in. Father, you offer us so much. And it's for us to act with the wisdom to accept it. I pray, Father, as we go through this week, with all of the stuff that's going on in our lives, Father, we all got lots of stuff, Father, that when that moment comes that we, we start to lose that sense of peace, maybe there's somebody here this morning and they're there right now. It's just like they're ready to explode because there's so much going on. Father, I pray that we would have the wisdom as your people Let's stand together as we worship the Lord this morning. We would have the wisdom as your people to simply reach out and accept the offer of peace and all that it means. And then show us how, Father, to work that out, Lord. Give us the creative minds. You've given us wonderfully creative minds to find a way to work that out. In Jesus' name, amen.